What is the unchecked, unanswerable Federal Reserve doing to us? Is this austerity? What's that going to mean? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Washington now spends about $1 trillion more each year than it collects in revenue. And the national debt is still growing. Most of that debt has accumulated over the past 20 years. In 2001, the nation actually had a cash surplus. The Treasury collected more in taxes than it spent on government services. Then came budget-busting tax cuts, bipartisan military spending deals, and more. In 2017, President Donald Trump signed a sprawling tax cut bill, reducing the rate paid by large U.S. corporations from 35% to 21%. And actually, the top tax rate was well more than double that in the remarkably prosperous 1950s under Republican Eisenhower. So as they exacerbate the debt, so-called conservatives throughout the last century have simultaneously argued for reining in government spending. They insist trimming social programs is wise and useful for stabilizing the economy. As in Western Europe, austerity has been pushed hard by what's known as the Troika. The European Commission, the European Central Bank, and International Monetary Fund on governments which have come to depend on those entities for access to needed capital. Many poor nations are over a barrel, and the lending institutions are fine with that. Today, we'll look at the question of what does austerity actually do? Well, it certainly protects the creditor institutions, the lenders, but what about the effects of uh, belt tightening on the people of those countries with needs for credit to create jobs and boost the economy? The argument from austerity is that while it does cause short-term pain, well, it eventually results in greater economic security in the long run. Mm-hmm. We'll see if that's true. Our guest today, Clara E. Matai, argues that it's a false argument. The issue is discussed in an article in Dissent magazine titled The Dawn of Austerity. With all the interest rate hikes being foisted on us lately, and there's more to come, are we in a period of enforced austerity here in the United States? And then no matter how they sell it, the real intent of austerity is to ensure a system of protecting the wealthy at the expense of everybody else. And that history shows, while it is often pushed by a liberal elite international establishment, austerity often paves the way for fascism. Clara Matei is an assistant professor in the economics department of the New School of Social Research and was 2018-2019 member of the School of Social Sciences at the Institute of Advanced Studies. She's recently published her first book titled Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism, put out by the University of Chicago Press. It investigates the origins of austerity after the World War I crisis, 
to understand its logic as a tool of reaction against any alternatives to capitalism. And that's the focus of our discussion today. The book has been called A Groundbreaking Examination of Austerity's Dark Intellectual Origins. Nobel Prize winning economist Thomas Piketty calls her book a must-read with key lessons for the future. She's currently working on a book project which critically reassesses the golden age of capitalism, which is 1945 to 1975, and its Keynesianism. Thank you so much for being with us today, uh, Dr. Matei. For those not familiar with the term, what do we mean by austerity? Thank you. Austerity is everywhere so that often we don't really need to use the term at all because it is really synonymous with supposed realistic and prudent economic policy. So when we talk about austerity, as you really pointed out, you gave a great description of what austerity is and what you just said a minute ago, because it's really not ultimately about balancing the budget and curbing inflation. These pretexts are for a much deeper goal, which is that of shifting resources away from the working people towards the saving investing few. So we need to understand austerity as fundamentally a trinity um, of three sets of policies that reinforce one another. We have fiscal austerity, meaning cuts in social expenditure, again, specifically on social expenditures, so mm -hmm. benefits uh, for the people, unemployment benefits, housing, education, healthcare, mm -hmm. which allows to spend in other sectors, such as the military, for example. Um, regressive taxation, so taking money, the revenue of the state coming from cons uh, taxing the majority through consumption taxes and cutting instead top income brackets, as you mentioned, cutting corporate taxes, having the few pay less. This is fiscal austerity. Then we have monetary austerity, what we've just heard Jerome Powell yesterday um, tell us that he will continue doing, which means increasing the interest rates, mm -hmm. um, hawkishly increasing the interest rates. And this has the impact that creditors gain, of course, people who invest in treasury bonds now are doing great. While the majority suffers. How? Well, not only because it's more expensive to get credits in order to get at the end of the months, but it's also about the fact that high interest rates induce a recession, which increases unemployment, which is exactly what these policies are meant to do. The sacrifice on the many of cooling down the labor market means that monetary austerity will increase unemployment, make us more precarious, and ultimately have us accept lower wages. This goes with industrial austerity, which is the third element of the Trinity, which is a direct um, involvement of the state in curtailing the bargaining power of the workers. How? Well, attacking unions, deregulating labor. Um, it's so structural to the United States that it's also it ultimately makes no sense to even discuss it because we're so used to industrial austerity that we don't even see it, right? But the fact, for example, that President Biden just passed by legislation the need for railway workers to stop striking and accept 
um, fewer benefits. This is a form of industrial austerity. And of course, um, privatization is a very important form because it increases once more our market dependence and thus our need to accept the current order, meaning the capital order. Mm. And the decision to impose austerity is often pictured as Oh, it's just technocratic. It's a clinical decision. There's no politics involved. It's, it's just simple, natural economics. You argue that an examination of the 20th century use of austerity has a, as you just explained, a less visible, not exactly neutral agenda. What kind of stability has austerity imposed? In what ways is it political? Thank you. This is so important. Well, it's the stability of our current capitalist society, which presupposes that the majority have to bear the brunt of the sacrifice while the few profit. And this is, in fact, the type of class stability that austerity um, protects. So once more, you can destabilize the economy by inducing a recession through monetary austerity and fiscal austerity. But this will ultimately pay off for those in power because it guarantees the fact that we are willing to go and sell our capacity to work for a very low wage. And what you've said about the economic models is extremely important. The capital order, my book, which is, I'm happily saying, is getting some recognition and people are realizing that it's pointing a fi the finger in a direction that is usually hidden, which is economics is not a neutral science. Economic models are deeply classist. And if you look at when these models emerged, when the neoclassical framework, which is current mainstream economics, which people study at school when they take micro and macro, these models emerged in a moment in which the objective of these economists of quashing democratic alternatives to organize society, of quashing demands for economic democracy, which would entail overcoming this vertical social relations we're so used to. These models emerged exactly to tell people, no, you're wrong. We got to accept the status quo in which a very small minority profits while the rest suffer. The motto in these models, which is the motto of austerity is consume less, produce more. And this is, again, exactly what the Fed is telling us we need to do today. And though political leaders argue to their constituents that, yeah, there's short-term pain, but austerity is there to help them. It's short-term pain and long-term gain. You say austerity is a tool to disempower people. Is that really the intent or, or just an unfortunate side effect? It's really in the intent, unfortunately. Um, the uh, trick here, um, which we need to release ourselves from, is the idea that our capitalist economy works for the good of the whole. A capitalist economy, by definition, is an economy in which there are conflicts between classes 
And it's an economy in which economic growth is to the benefit of the capitalist class and to the detriment of the majority. The working classes lose both in time of upturn and in time of downturn. So this is how our economy functions. So we should really avoid believing those who tell us that the sacrifice is collective. The sacrifice is never collective, is always of the majority to safeguard the minority. And in this, I feel that our current inflationary crisis is a typically good example because when there is inflation, people suffer because they have to pay more for their basic needs, grocery shopping, oil, um, rents. But at the same time, to cure inflation, they will also have to suffer because instead of actually taxing the rich and putting price caps on commodities, what is said that needs to be done is to decrease the purchasing power of the majority, um, deflate aggregate demand, which means people should consume less. And this is done by also compressing their wages via the unemployment disciplinary mechanism. And there, there's other ways. You, you say there's a lot of invisibility here. And we may not see the current moment as one of this the same kind of direct, top-down, rather mean-spirited uh, austerity that, that the uh, European Union is imposing on poor countries like Greece. But what we have is... We look at where the money is actually being spent and where it isn't. Uh, and and it kind of looks similar to austerity. Maybe it is. Like, for example, the U.S. is spending well over $900 billion per year on our military budget. As that spending goes up, Republicans and some Democrats look to cut social investments like Social Security and Medicare. So it seems like the effect is the same. You say... It's being used to incentivize an investing elite. I mean, and the argument for that is uh, that, uh, you know, top down, uh, trickle down. Yeah, like that ever worked. The powers that run the economic machine. How you say is regressive taxation an important plank of fiscal austerity and the regressive taxation, uh, you know, cutting taxes for the very, very richest? Yes, absolutely. Regressive taxation is a fundamental element because, again, it shows you that balancing the budget is never really what is being done. Because, of course, if you did tax the richest, the richer more, you would get more revenue. Uh, but that's not the objective of austerity. The logic of austerity is not to balance the budget. That's just the rhetoric to that is being used to tell us we're all in the same boat, we really need to be more virtuous, but really what is happening is that the money is not coming in because the people with money are not being taxed, and at the same time, um, those same people who are not paying taxes will benefit from lending money to the state. So we see how it's really a, a game in which the usual few win because once um, Biden is capable of increasing the debt ceiling, then the loans will come from these elites that have not been taxed. And again, this is all austerity. This is all austerity. We cannot look at the aggregate the fact that we're spending more on the military, this is still coherent with the austerity logic because the austerity logic is that we need to spend away from people so that people stop 
complaining, stop thinking that there are alternatives. And this is especially important in a moment like today in which there is clearly a momentum in the labor market. Why is there momentum? Well, we are seeing that nominal wages are going up even 5% in the last year. Why are nominal wages going up? And they're going up especially for marginalized groups that are seeing increases in their wages. Why? Well, because the bargaining power of the workers is higher. Why is the bargaining worker power of the workers higher? Because there are people who are actually leaving their jobs. Yes. Their great resignation is a serious phenomenon. It was 46 million American workers in 2022 who left their jobs. Why are they leaving their jobs? Because people are fed up with their precarious and exploitative conditions. So that at this point, we see that it makes a lot of sense to increase interest rates because we got to get people back in the jobs. And we got to get people back in the jobs so that we protect our capitalist economy and we foreclose alternatives to think about how to organize a society that is actually ecologically sustainable, that is Mm -hmm. actually for the people. It does seem to be happening little by little, little, not exactly trickle down, maybe trickle up. And, you know, Marxism and communism, it just is, it's no longer a credible economic system. It seems that most people have come to see capitalism as just naturally occurring. Yes. What's, what's wrong with this understanding? Is it not the result of simple deterministic laws? Isn't, is capitalism not a natural given? This is the big intuition. This is the big point the book I wrote, The Capital Order, really wants to stress. The capital order is exactly that social relation which grounds capitalism by which the majority accept their condition as wage workers. Now, without these wage workers, without exploitation, there would be no capitalism. This said, capitalism is not something that is given from heaven. It's actually a social construction that needs constant protection. And this is something experts in power know and know well. That's why they're fearing inflation that is getting people to get more upset. And they're fearing people leaving their jobs because they know that the capital order is not a given and needs to be safeguarded. And this is why we need to disciplined people. Now, you're right to say that the type of alternatives that we think as alternatives, such as the Soviet Union, were not great models. But the point here is, again, that those aren't necessarily alternatives to the wage relation, right? So the book, my book focuses on a year, which is very important, which is 1919, in which I really stress how there were democratic alternatives being experimented with, which meant actually bringing sovereignty to the producers by democratic decision-making in the workplace. Something that, of course, none of the so-called realized communisms have actually been able to guarantee. So um, actually, in a study of the USSR, one will see that actual austerity was imposed also in those countries. So what I'm trying to mm-hmm. say is that the alternatives that we think as alternatives to capitalism, which justify capitalism because they look so bad, mm-hmm. are actually not the type of alternatives that are 
they're not the types of alternatives that we could aim for if we increased our political imagination and took seriously certain calls for economic democracies uh -huh. that have happened historically. Economic democracy. What a concept. Economic democracy. Let's hope we hear more of that as time goes on. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the economy. We're talking about austerity. Our guest today is Professor Clara Matei, Assistant Professor in the Economics Department of the New School for Social Research. She has a couple of books out. One, well, one coming. The one that's out, her first book is Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way for Fashion. And her upcoming book is The Golden Age of Capitalism, 1945, and it's Keynesianism. And before we get to FDR, you mentioned uh, and, and why it didn't happen then. Uh, as, all, as regular listeners are all too aware, I am obsessed with the monumental effects of the First World War and on the history of the 20th and now 21st century, yes, the First World War. Paint a picture for us about the economic realities the Western world found itself in in 1919 when the massive, unimaginable catastrophe of what was then called the Great War came to an end. What was so pivotal about this term in period in terms of what we're talking about? Yes, crucial, crucial. So we need to explain what we mean by economic democracy because it's not just an abstract term oh, because sure. in 1919 it was real, it was concrete. It was about all of these different ways to organize production and distribution that had been prompted by the fundamental shock that the Great War was for the economy. So let me explain. With the First World War, what since then was considered a natural fact, let's say fair capitalism, was put into question. Why? Because the state had to intervene massively to actually boost military production in order to even win the war. So the state became the main employer and the main producer. Yes. This had the effect of repoliticizing the pillars of our society, meaning private property of the means of production and wage relations. Why repoliticizing? Well, because it was clear to citizens that if the state had stepped in to preserve these two pillars, these two pillars were not natural after all. And so with the harsher exploitation that occurred during the First World War to keep productivity high in order to industrialize fast enough and have enough arms to win the war, it was clear that the workers were playing a crucial role yes. in winning this war. So this sense of entitlement, the sense of uh, centrality of the producer was so strong that in 1919, people got together to think about other ways in which we could think about running our society and our economy. Examples, I, the book I wrote, The Capital Order, looks at these two different settings, Italy and Great Britain. And what you see is that at the center of Western capitalism of the time, there were all of these experiments such as guild socialism. So mm. actually organizing production horizontally, not for profit, but for use. Mm. Then we had 
councils in Italy, councils were extremely strong. And the idea was, again, that it was the embryo of a new state in which workers were central and in which the idea was that we were once more collaborating and not getting exploited. There are cooperative movements. There was an idea of self-management of industry and of agriculture. So all of these experiments were then foreclosed by the austerity counteroffensive of the 1920s, mm. which initially also took on a fascist form. And this foreclosure of alternatives is still the backbone of austerity to this day. You know, and you think about how different England and Italy are, but, but they, the connection between austerity and fascism is, is just, uh, it's incredible, really, that... Uh, uh, and, and, well, perhaps you can take this point, and there's still more to discuss on this particular period. Please explain how, as you say, Mussolini would have never really solidified his rule without the consensus of the domestic and international liberal elite. Yes. And this is to explain the subtitle, How Austerity Paved the Way to Fascism. Yes. Uh, because, in fact... Um, the correct reading of the subtitle, which is a tricky one, is that austerity and fascism go hand in hand. Why? Because in a moment in which the Italian people were really being, quote unquote, turbulent, because they were really asking for something different, then only the coercive hand of the state was capable of implementing those economic reforms that now are so obvious to us and we take so much for granted. But at the time, they were really controversial. So you needed a strong state. You needed a strong man to actually implement these reforms. And liberals all around the globe, America and the United Kingdom, were really um, clear about the fact that this is what it was needed. This, I, I just want to read you a quote I found in the archives of the Bank of England. This was the governor at the time, Montagu Norman, who was the emblem of liberalism. And he was saying in 26... 1926, fascism has surely brought order out of chaos over the last few years. Something of the kind was no doubt needed if the pendulum was not to swing too far in quite the other direction. The Duce was the right man at a critical moment. And the right man at a critical moment was capable of creating the, the wanted industrial peace by banning strikes, banning union, repressing wages by decree, all policies that the liberals applauded uh -huh. and it's actually interesting to note that the liberals were doing the same in their own country because of course there was not a necessarily a um a violent state um putting um oppose a op uh, uh, political opposition in jail but there was the impersonal market forces that the treasury in the bank of england had fomented against the people. Why? Because if you induce a recession by increasing interest rates, again, something we're mm -hmm. seeing right now today, yes, yes. the inducing a recession is something that is very violent, economically violent on the people and will achieve the same result of silencing any alternatives because the increases on unemployment killed the bargaining power of the workers and ultimately repress wages and have people shut up. So the parallelism between the story and 
fascist Italy and liberal Britain speak to us today and tell us be wary of these comforting binaries that we are used to by saying fascism is so distant from our capitalist democracy. Actually, if you look at history, fascism and capitalist democracies are quite close in their objective and in their treatment of their own citizens. Yeah, it's just one is less subtle than the other. Yeah, exactly. A little bit less subtle. And as a British character in our currently streaming TV series 1923 said of the Great War, it was all for nothing, but we lost everything. Now, the British Empire may have technically won the war, but what heck happened economically, politically, and socially in England in the 1920s? What, what did that winning in England look like for the working people who had, who had really won the war? Right. Well, immediately after the war, there was great hopes. And that's when um, also um, state bureaucrats were uh, chapter two of the capital order really gets into all of these very um, enlightened ideas of reforms, you know, homes fit for heroes, um, uh, adult education, the welfare state was born in those years. So 1919, 1920, as years of great hope and great reforms in order to avoid revolution fundamentally. Uh, but then uh, we see how once austerity kicks in, the austerity reaction kicks in uh, by the mid 1920s, um, the world goes in a direction that is clearly not favorable to the people because we see increases in unemployment, mm. in, which brings about low wages. So the wage share goes down. The wage share is how much of the GDP goes to wages instead of profits. And in contrast, profit share goes up and profit rates go up. So once more, we're back to our old current day capitalism in which the few benefit to the detriment of the majority. And with the collapse of the established political and economic order, not just in uh, in you know Italy, uh, but in many places in Western Europe, I mean the, the royalties, uh, the empires just suddenly ended. They came to a, a fast stop. With the collapse of those orders, the end of the war, with the end of the war brought, there were some angry leftist rebellions, not just the one we all know about in Russia, but in Germany as well. There was great worry among political and you know, even among the military, great worry among political leaders in France and in the UK that Bolshevism was a threat there as well. You refer to GDH Cole's 1920 observation that, quote, the widespread conviction that capitalism was inevitable was collapsing. You say the war affected capitalism's shield of inevitability. In what ways they're worried that the post-World War I period was a time of existential crisis for capitalism? What do you mean by that? Yes, I think I mean what I tried to explain um, a little bit before, which is that the pillars of capitalism were collapsing. People did not believe that wage relations, meaning the fact that you go to work uh, for a wage and you are not in charge neither of the activity of, of your labor nor of the product of your labor which is expropriated from you and you just get a small wage in return um, this wage relations which are at the basis of capitalist economic growth of capital accumulation was something that people were questioning people were saying no we want to actually participate collectively in production in a way that is not exploitative and plus it was also 
also obvious that private property of the means of production, the other great pillar of our current economic mm -hmm. system, was also seen as quite inefficient ultimately because the war had shown that if you left it all in private hands, well then, you know, uh, interestingly enough, uh, resources were being diverted towards luxury goods and towards, for example, um, selling the ships um, to your enemies because it was more profitable. Yeah, yeah. So it was very clear that like the profit motive was not something that did the good of the whole, but was actually antithetical to use value and all about exchange value. And this is something that uh, threatened the existence of capitalism as such with all of these alternatives that we just discussed coming to the fore. Mm. And it's right then that austerity emerges very visibly as the counteroffensive. Wow. Yeah, you can see how that might yeah, anger a few people selling weapons to your enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and World War I shaped the, the entire 20th century much more than is generally realized. It didn't just end with the uh, Versailles document, that's for sure. In what ways did the austerity imposed after the war ensure the trajectory of the political economy for the many decades that followed. Thank you. Um, the uh, thesis, the thought-provoking thesis of the capital order is that we should stop thinking uh, about our 20th and 21st century, uh, the history of capitalism of the 20th and 21st century as being about um, moments that are really qualitatively distinct and especially that neoliberalism is the problem right now. I tend to say that actually if you focus on austerity and you understand austerity in the deeper sense of the book, so this trinity that shifts resources, then we realize that austerity is in the DNA of our system and how we should really mm. think about austerity capitalism, which has a much longer run, longer history than neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is only from the 80s onwards. We're talking about shaping the whole trajectory of the 20th and the 21st century. And with this trinity of austerity, what really has shaped our society is the way economists think about our society. And so this double strategy of austerity, coercion through mm making workers more precarious and market dependent with consensus building, meaning mm -hmm. that we all really deeply believe in the fact that if we don't have enough, it's because we're not good enough. Mm. The fact that this false meritocracy that is imbued in the economic models that grew at that time, and again, their political models, even if they appear to be very scientific, well, this is all something that deeply shapes our society still right now. Uh, so much to talk about. I definitely want to get to false meritocracy as we go on. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the basis of democracy, really. Uh, our economy that we just take for granted is natural. There's nothing we can do about it. Our guest today is Professor Clara Matei, who's Assistant Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research. And she's uh, been uh, in it. There was an article, The Dawn of Austerity in Dissent Magazine. Her book is uh, Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. Her upcoming book is The Golden Age of Capitalism, which, of course, talks about Keynesianism as well. Before we get to that stuff, at the time in the 1920s, there was the expanding right to vote, the votes for women. It encouraged enfranchisement here in the United States. 
after the Gilded Age, demands for economic democracy started to grow. And uh, more and more, well, I, I want to talk how we got there. Just leading, you know, these things don't come out of nothing. There's always some, some, something that happens before that. In the 1890s, one very big figure in America was William Jennings Bryan. He took on the political argument that linking our currency to the gold standard shored up the wealthiest at the expense of the average working people. Mm -hmm. Was that movement sort of the a spark related to what we're talking about? Well, definitely. Um, I, of course, the capital order focuses on the big crisis after the First World War as a moment of deep contestation of the basis of our system. But clearly there are moments prior to that as well in which people contest the fundamentals. And the gold standard was a big one, right? And, and the gold standard is exactly what austerity aimed and at and reachieved uh, by the mid-1920s um, all over the globe. And why is that? Well, because the gold standard naturalizes austerity. Why? Because the idea there is that you're the hands of... Uh, of the state are tied in terms of social expenditures because as soon as you spend more for the people, you are importing more and this means that you, the, you will lose gold. And if you lose gold, you uh, risk um, uh, losing your peg to gold. So we see how it is a technical mechanism that naturalizes austerity becomes it, because it makes it very much about a me mechanical necessity rather than a political choice. Oh. So, uh, and of course, the gold standard once more is something that favors the few creditors, investors, uh, to the detriment of the many who cannot uh, ask for higher wages or more social expenditure because that would make the economy less competitive and thus um, gold would be lost. So we see how part of the strategy of austerity is indeed to depoliticize the economic, which means de-democratize the economic, mm. leave the economic sphere in the hands of the experts or in the hands of these technical mechanisms that mm. make it such that we can't intervene. And the euro uh, zone is again a gold standard, right? The people have lost monetary sovereignty um, and countries cannot manage their economy in a way that is expansive because we are in the euro. So we see how this gold standard form of gold standards reemerged today. But the whole point here is that you're taking decision making authority away from the people, mm -hmm. away from the public discourse with the idea that only the expert knows what's happening mm -hmm. and the rest should just accept. Yeah. Trust the technocrats. We don't know anything. Just trust them. They're exactly. they're not political. They're just uh, doing the the technical aspects of it. And it's commonly assumed that the economic crisis of the Great Depression in America, well, in Western Europe too, in the 1930s, sparked a significant rise of the left in Western countries. Some real anger that as things got worse, people would increasingly seek more radical alternatives. You say that. Calls for those changes had actually, by that time, already been extinguished, which is not what we generally assume. Why was there not a stronger pull to the left in the 1930s? In what ways had the foundation of capitalism as a socioeconomic system already been secured by then, and it sort of took the wind out of any left-leaning sails? 
Yeah, um, this is the big thesis uh, of the book is uh, we tend to all focus on 1929 as the big moment of crisis instead of 1919. And I think this is very problematic because, again, this focus of historians, and this is why it's important to know how historians serve a very political role as well. Yeah. Because if you focus on 1929, then what is the result? Um, the result is that uh, the alternatives there are already not very democratic because we have fascism and Nazism and the USSR and capitalism seems the democratic way forward, especially in the Keynesian form, right? Um, so, um, but guess what? The reason why capitalism could take a democratic uh, uh, facade was that workers had already been uh, suppressed in their demands because unemployment was soaring in the 1930s. So the economic violence of uh, uh, austerity for the throughout the 1920s peaked through the Great Depression in the United States, which of course had tied the hands of labor in the sense that people could protest, but those were protests of defense, were not protests of offense. Mm -hmm. The protests of offense were happening in 1919, 1918, in which people were envisioning a completely different future. And at that moment, the alternatives were truly democratic because they were about workers' councils, self-management of industry, self-management of agriculture, defeating the experts and taking back agency. And in this moment, it's when austerity needs to hit. And, this, and it's obvious how austerity and capitalism itself are very anti-democratic in their objective and in their functioning. Wow, fascinating that, that they had gone on the offense in 19 and just mere defense in 1929. That's a big, important uh, distinction there. And you mentioned Keynes, John Maynard Keynes was actually physically in the room when the infamous Versailles Treaty was going through its difficult, painful, ugly birth contortions. He wrote a pivotal, pivotal book at the time called Economic Consequences of the Peace. Keynesian economics remains a powerful force in the 21st century. FDR, of whom it said, he saved capitalism. He certainly was a Keynesian. Was he not? And for those not clear on what is meant by Keynesian economics, a description by you would be very helpful. May I ask your indulgence, please, about Keynesian economics and how FDR saved capitalism, Keynesianism today? Thank you. So what is usually uh, um, understood as Keynesianism is a variety of policies that are inspired by John Maynard Keynes, who in 1936 wrote an important book called The General Theory. And The General Theory was written once more in a time in which the uh, workers had lost their bargaining power because there was a problem of a uh, underemployment of resources. And this is a moment in which Keynes uh, came uh, um, out with a very important theoretical insight, which was capitalism does not go in equilibrium on its own. Full employment of resources is not guaranteed in a capitalist economy. So this is why the state has to intervene to boost effective demand and especially to create an environment that is congenial to the average businessman. So instead of hoarding, the businessman actually invests. So this is why for him it was very important to actually um, um, have the state intervene as the stabilizing role to increment 
economic activity. Mm-hmm. Now you see that the whole question that Kane is is trying to answer is a question that ultimately presupposes the defeat of the working class. Mm. Um, Keynes was not the Keynesian, how we interpret Keynesianism in the early uh, in 1919, 1920, he was actually advocating for austerity because Keynesians, like austerity economists, presuppose the capital order as the only possibility for our human civilization. Uh-huh. So um, the critique uh, that emerges from my book, which I'm going to expand in my next book, is that Keynesianism presupposes a certain degree of austerity to even be viable. And this, I think, is something that is very clear today in a moment in which inflation is again up, so-called Keynesians really are also advocating for deflation because ultimately they know that the system has limits and that if monetary stability is not guaranteed, if people don't want to go back to work and if people are contesting the wage relation, then the system is screwed. And uh, if you believe that capitalism is the only way forward, well, you got to better stabilize these class relations pretty fast. (laughs) So that's the kind of the idea that actually Keynesianism is possible when workers have been silenced, when workers like it is right now um, reunionize, um, make their voices heard, get their wages, um, start to go up, which was something quite unseen for a while in the United States, then um, technocrats, both Keynesians and austere, ally in favor of deflation. Fascinating. And for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Claire, Clara Matei. We're talking about economics and politics. Her book, Capital Order, How Economics Invented Austerity and Paid, Paved the Way for Fascism. And she's got another book coming up. And, and there really is a lot more connection between politics, political power, and the economy. It's not a separate uh, issue. And Blatantly today, today's Republicans, boy, they're different from how they used to be, I will say, in many, many aspects. But they're eager servants of the rich. They make no bones about it. Allegedly Democratic President Bill Clinton enacted welfare reform. Now, was that also not a form of harmful austerity? It definitely was. I'm sorry, I just lost the one word that you said. What did you say about Bill Clinton of what did he do? Oh, he, he was... Allegedly a Democrat, uh, he enacted welfare reform, which st- struck me as a kind of uh, harmful and, and painful austerity. Well, yes, um, Bill Clinton is famously known for the president who went from welfare to workfare, right? right who right. transformed the type of the meager benefits people get in this country in, in a conditional to um, um accepting uh, one's condition as wage worker. And this is how benefits still work in this country today. You do not get unemployment benefits unless you're showing actively that you're searching for a job. Once more, because the capital order, this fundamental wage relation that grounds our society needs to be protected and cannot be questioned by social redistributive measures that are actually given just for the sake that we're humans and we need resources. That is incompatible with capitalism. You do not get resources to exist. You get something if you are a disciplined and productive worker. So um, uh, Bill Clinton uh, really shows how austerity goes is a policy and an ideology that go, c- 
cuts across party lines. Yes. And actually, subtly, it has been done much more by Democrats than by Republicans. Mm. So it's something that we need to watch out. Again, what I tried to say in my book is let's understand who all our enemies are, and especially those who disguise themselves as experts who are doing the good of the whole when we realize that the good of the whole doesn't <laughs> exist under capitalism. Oh, my goodness. Uh, experts, yes, so-called experts. Uh, and I, I wonder about the rise of dangerous, kind of fascistic right-wing they call it populism. We've seen it in America, in, in Hungary, in Brazil, and elsewhere. And I wonder if the, the stimulus for that is any reflection of resistance, of, of sort of a, a, a gut-level resistance against this political top-down economics. Yes, thank you. This is uh, really important. Um, sadly, I feel that these... Um, the fact that uh, people are attracted to these forms of authoritarian uh, right-wing mm -hmm. movements is a statement of the success of austerity in having disempowered us and in having individualized us. So the fact that people are in thinking that their um, opponents are the weaker, the weakest, right? The fact that you think that the migrant is your problem. Right. Uh, and you're not seeing that the problem is actually those at the top who are constantly exploiting you and extracting resources from you. This is, speaks to the success of austerity, who has us have all internalized basically the ideas that benefit the few. Um, so these move, these unfortunately, these right-wing um uh, successes are the success of austerity because ultimately also these governments uh, and uh, I'm Italian and Giorgio Meloni is a very good example yes. of what just happened in Italy. Um, we see they come with promises for the people but then, of course, they're playing the game of, uh, of the money delete. And so then they just um, blame it on the weakest. Uh, Giorgio Meloni and uh, our Italian government just was responsible of literally the killing of um, hundreds um, of also of uh, small babies who uh, were on a boat from yes. Afghanistan. We let sink on purpose, fundamentally, even if they say not on purpose, and this plays uh, the game of these types of uh, right-wing movements, which again are not something that uh, uh, stray away from austerity, they just reinforce it. Because in the meantime, for example, Meloni is also cutting the citizenship income, um, cutting he health care, um, money for the healthcare system in Italy, and so on and so forth. And, and she is a called a post-fascist, and not only about that sinking that very few people are aware of, that that really killed innocent children, a lot of them. She also has a new law against rave parties as part of a plan to protect the wealthy sector. How are rave parties seen by her as a, as a threat? Well, this is, again, um, tells you how bad the media is right now. It's yeah. not, it's called the decree against rave parties and also the politicians present it that way. And that's why it's, it's uh, discussed in those terms. But really, if you look deep down, it's a way to curtail protests in general. Uh -huh, yes. um, it's a way to criminalize any uh, real as assemblage of people that is, uh, is not um, approved of. And this is something that is done clearly um, again, as a form of protection 
against protesters and stuff like this is happening in Britain as well, right? We're seeing another huge wave of austerity, um, cuts in the budget, monetary deflation, deregulation of labor. Uh, There's protests happening and the state, the austere state is also passing laws to criminalize protests. And this is, again, uh, part and parcel of the austerity package, which in the United States is so normal Mm. (laughs) that we don't even discuss. And that's liberalism for you. Hey, amazing. Absolutely. And and liberalism sort of bleeding into to fascism. Do you see any signs? I always look for some optimism of repoliticizing some economic issues. Is there any sign of people calling for more say of over how the economy is run and what interest it serves? Might that great resignation arising from the pandemic be a little bit of a sign of people calling for more uh, say over how the economy is run? I think I'm optimistic. I feel we are in a moment in which people are done with the bullshit. Um, to, to, sorry for, for the wording, but I really do think we are in a moment in which um, uh, people want something different. And uh, and yes. this is clear by the young generations that I'm 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 I'm, I'm teaching. Um, I see it how much they are really thirsty for a types of explanation that really question the very foundation of how our economy works. Um, and I do see it uh, in these um, it also. Um, uh, let's say more spontaneous rebellion uh-huh. that comes through the great resignation. The fact that 46 million Americans have left their jobs um, is a signal that uh, people are fed up. And so I think that it, um, together with the big unionization uh, movements that are happening, especially in the service sector, which historically has yes. been the most exploited, um, is all are all signs that there is an awakening. And another form of awakening, I think, is also this uh, alternative media. Uh, your show, combined with many other shows that now have um, shown an interest in uh, what are clearly non-mainstream views that I'm presenting in the Capital Order, the book I just published. So um, I am optimistic, and I do feel like the contribution I'm making in my work is to actually show how there's nothing necessary or given. Our society is not the only one possible. We should give up this uh, end of history uh, yeah. narrative that traps our political imagination and open up instead to new imagination that could really foster agency and instead defeat passivity, the passive consensus that austerity and the experts uh, sure. try to refurbish. One thing I've often wondered about is, you know, oftentimes on, on the, the homes, the uh, uh, trailer parks, there have been uh, signs for the wealthiest candidates, the really, really wealthy candidates. Uh, and it's, it struck me as odd. And many average working Americans believe economic virtue is the exclusive province of the wealthiest. They, they often buy into the line that spending on health and education is oh, unproductive, while the economic royalists are where public funding should go, that the private sector, the wealthiest, deserve privacy because they're the productive ones, the yeah. job creators. What, what about this? Do you see any shift there? Um, um Hopefully, yes. Uh, hopefully, yes, really, because um, I really, I really 
really think that um, uh, this narrative has been pushed hard. It has been pushed hard, especially by economic models. And these models now that are so mathematized in which the assumptions are really hidden by numbers. Um, if you look at when these models emerged, and this is the story I tell in my book, you see how the moral element and uh, an element that is not only moral, but also is very social Darwinistic with the idea that classes don't matter your initial endowments don't matter. What matters is your virtuosity, your capacity to save and abstain. This is clearly false because we are in a system in which where you start off with, where and what you start off with matter a lot and uh, matter more than anything. We very well know that the story of the self-made man is a made-up story that is maybe the exception of a few cases that then Hollywood aggrandizes. But the reality is that the majority of us actually have a tougher life than the one of our parents and grandparents. Um, so we we are not seeing at all a system of equal opportunities and of um, capacity to actually increase your uh, your uh, living standards. Quite the opposite. And this again is not uh, by chance, but it's the in the structure of our economy. The structure of the economy has to have all of us consume less, produce more to the, for the benefit of the few. And the few don't even work, right? The few are not putting any uh, energy. They're just investing their money. And money bleeds more money, given that it's not even taxed money. Uh, and actually, they get then to um, lend money to the state. Yes. And then it's, it's just like a wonderful game. <laughs> um, and, and this is then why then there's all these... Um, People that don't know what to do with their money and they're inventing yeah. what the next. The last thing was the submarines. There's a big b- b- booming sector of uh, rich people buying submarines to have parties underwater. You know, this oh, type geez. of well, the majority of people can't even get to the end of the month. This is what we're talking about. This is capitalism at, at face value. This is what we we are in for. And this is why we really need to get out of it. And launching those rockets, Musk and Zuckerberg, just not knowing what to do with it. It's kind of sick, really, in my opinion. This has been very, very interesting. And we need to look at this stuff at the basis for our allegedly non-political economy. And again, economic democracy, boy, I think it needs a lot more consideration and talk about. And Bernie Sanders has talked about it. And uh, what a concept. Our guest, I'm very pleased. It's been great to have Clara Matei, Assistant Professor of Economics Department at New School for Social Research. She's got one book, Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way for Fascism. And it's got a new book out, uh, which critically reassesses the golden age of capitalism, 1945 to 1975. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Uh, the the book on the golden age will be to come. For now, the, the we have the capital order, which I hope right. people can read, with the idea that alternatives are alive. They're there. We need to discover them. We need to push for them. Yes. And we, we can and we should envision a better future for us and our children and grandchildren. So thank you so much uh, for having me on this wonderful show. And I hope to speak to you guys soon. Thank you.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.